Thanks for taking the time to listen to this Mental Health Network podcast. For all the latest news and resources, and to find out more about the Mental Health Network, please visit nhsconfed.org forward slash MHN. Welcome, everyone, to this first podcast about LGBTQ plus visibility within the healthcare workforce. I'm Peter Molyneux. I chair Sussex Partnership NHS Foundation Trust, and my role is to guide us through this conversation this morning about what I think is um, an underrepresented uh, topic within healthcare and um, really interested to hear people's experiences and I'll certainly be feeding in some of my experience as a chair and as a, as a Stonewall um, ambassador. We know that the NHS can and needs to do more um, to make sure that its workforce fully reflects the population and to make sure that its leadership reflects um, the profile of its staff that the staff can see in their leaders themselves reflected um, back to them and that we need to make sure that those with protected characteristics can thrive and be the, bring the best of themselves uh, to work. Today we'll be asking what it takes to navigate a successful career when you're openly LGBTQ plus and what role allies can play in improving the working um, experience. So um, enough from me, without further ado, I start to bring uh, the panel into uh, this, this, this topic. So can I ask the panel to introduce themselves? So I'm Anna Inastotir and I'm from the University of York. I'm currently running a large ESRC funded project into LGBT plus staff network within the NHS. And I worked on a range of um, projects that involve LGBT communities in and outside the workplace. Okay, um, I'm Tari Hewitt, I'm the Group Equality and Inclusion Programme Manager for a large um, group NHS organisation up in Manchester, the Northern Care Alliance, um, so we cover 22,000 staff and five hospitals. I'm also co-founder of the Trans um, Staff Network for the NHS and the Trans Equality Legal Initiative where we work with lawyers and the trans community to try and increase access to justice. I'm Adam Doyle, I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Clinical Commissioning Groups in Sussex. I'm also the Senior Responsible Officer for our Sustainability and Transformation Partnership in that area. Um, I'm, an, I'm an out gay man um, and a Chief Executive that, um, that often talks about what it is to be a gay leader um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what people have got to offer today and how I can help to take the leadership forward locally in my system. Thank you. Well perhaps Adam we could start with you following on from what you just said about what, what's your experience of being sort of openly openly gay in the in the workplace I'd be really honest and say quite mixed to be frank so I trained as a physiotherapist um, so so worked for a long part of my career at the clinical interface um, and remember at that point I qualified was 21 um, and was working as a as a clinician and I remember having very um, very challenging conversations or conversations with patients that challenged me and challenged my thought process. First of all, when, people, when patients would outrightly ask me what my sexuality was. Secondary then, I also had some great people who were really, really supportive of my career, wanted me to be me at work, and other people where it didn't always feel that you were able to do that. Um, I then moved up obviously into management roles um, and I've had, I've, had, I've had some great experiences where people have asked about what it has been to, to be a gay man and to be able to talk about my sexuality in a way that is, that is honest, authentic and also um, how I espouse the NHS values in doing that. 
But still today, I am responsible for a large org group of organisations. Um, I do see things that happen in, uh, in the organisation and can recognise when we do get it wrong, both for our staff and also for our patients. So I'd say being out has helped me, I think, to help champion the agenda. But I think every day it is still, a, it is still at times a challenge to, to be your complete self at work. So Tara, does that resonate for you or is, is, it, is it different from your perspective? I think I'd use exactly the, the same introduction um, to that, that it's mixed. I think I've had some really wonderful managers and colleagues that have helped me be myself at work and allow me to be myself at work, not least my current manager, Nahid Nazir, over at the Northern Care Alliance, who has really helped me grow into the management role that I'm, I'm doing and mm. helped um, with being a leadership role model for me. But equally, some of the challenges when you work in equality and diversity as a trans person is that you see some of the worst of the worst things that happen in the NHS. And when you're confronted with managers discussing in a meeting, for example, um, whether a patient should have been admitted to a women's ward because they didn't look enough of a woman and did they have genitals, and then you have to go and engage professionally with that manager on other topics, and you're worried, are they looking at me like that? Are they thinking, should I be in that space? Um, how are they assessing me in that situation? And again, not necessarily because those people are coming from a position of malice, but not really reflecting on, on, on the conversations that they're having and the impact that can have on trans colleagues. I'm quite lucky because I work in E&D and my job is to speak out on these issues. Um, but I, I don't know what, what that means for people that are working as a nurse or as a doctor or in other administrative roles that maybe aren't in the same position as me. What about you, Anna? Does, how, does it, how does it feel from your perspective? Yeah, I echo a lot of the things that have been said on the table by Adam and Tara. Um, I think for me, because because the virtue of what I do, um, focusing on LGBT populations in the workplace, my sexuality is automatically assumed. It's never been questioned. It's never been even an option that I am anything but um, a non-heterosexual identifying individual. And that's been quite interesting. Um, so. For me, um, I think overall my experience has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, as a researcher, as a lesbian, um, it's made my way very easy in terms of connecting with people also who are taking part in the project, although we're all different. Um, there's been a level of understanding. But as a teacher, um, I think that can be a bit more mixed at times and it's it's a real fine balancing act about being open um, or just being or saying nothing at all. But yes, um, I would agree that it is, um, it is a constant kind of ne negotiation um, on everyday basis really. But I would say I'm really lucky uh, um, in my current workplace. I've got a great freedom, I can do the work I love to do, uh, which is do research for the LGBT communities. We've all sort of said in slightly different ways that, that visibility has changed. But I mean, how, how, to what extent do you think that has changed? Yeah, what I've seen through um, my work with the network is that the visibility of the LGBT plus network has certainly increased and they're now part of the conversation. But the umbrella that the LGBT actually kind of represent, there is real questions about you know, how visible and lesbians, gay, bisexual and transgender are within 
um, those networks. So yes, I, I would definitely um, say that the overall visibility and presence of Staff Negro has improved general awareness levels. But there's something also to be said about what happens within staff networks, because the more formalized they become, what seems to be happening also, there's less space for us as individuals within the groups to have a conversation about the things that matter to us on a personal basis and in our, in our everyday working lives. That's really interesting because I suppose as an as a, a NHS leader, um, we, we are all trying to really embed staff networks as a thing. So, so I think what I'm hearing, and it's making me think, is are they right for now but won't be right for the long term as, because there is a risk we become so structured and formalised and there's almost the prototype way of doing it. And what I'm hearing from what we're saying is how do you, how do you give them a... a um, the right voice in an organisation, almost the right power, but also create the right environment where still you can still hear the the actual coalface experience that happened in a supported way, because there is a risk that they become corporatized over time and become a very functional thing rather than deliver what the ask is about actually an inclusive culture at, at the grassroots level. I think I think, think for me it's looking at different ways to look at visibility and staff networks are one of those ways um, but actually there's challenges around intersectionality so how visible are our uh, LGBTQ plus people of colour um, and how much are we actively looking to do that if we just leave it to a staff network and we're not seeing that diversity what's the organisation doing to promote those role models so looking at opportunities to just promote role models in organisations I think it's the same with trans inclusion so I get frustrated when I see LGBT meetings happening that are called LGBT meetings and there's no trans people in the room there's no trans people there and that happens um, on staff networks it happens when we're organising and planning events um, at a national and at a local level or actually maybe looking at diversifying the models so if you're not getting trans staff how can we look at a trans citizen group? So the University of Salford, while they have a staff network, they actually have a trans um, council, which involves both students, staff, and people from the local community, which allows you to bring that diversity in where you might not be seeing it within your own organisational structures. And in terms of the work with Anna that you're, you've been doing with staff networks, is, is the issue of allies coming through there and, and the importance of allies? Yeah, most certainly. I think most of the networks that we have worked with um, involve allies as well. And it's interesting what we say is that, um, you know, the allies don't quite know why they're there. And, and you know, and, and they're there to support. But there is the, we really would like to see some more discussion about what are the different contributions that people actually make and bring to the table um, on, on the virtue of their identities. Um, they have an enormous uh, amount of power and I think is seriously underutilised within the networks because those open discussions about what is it that we actually bring to the table don't seem to be happening to the extent that we were expecting. And I also think allies have a strong role in terms of putting heterosexuality on the map as a sexuality mm. because it's such a silent and unvoiced thing and I think it's really important that that is done in the same way that when we talk about race, we, we are open about being white or, or BME. 
It's interesting, isn't it? That I mean, I find even in even now in 2019, there's still a still a bit of a conflation of certainly the LGB part of LGBT plus as being about sex and sexuality, rather than being about identity. And it it, it, it interests me that we're still having to have that that conversation. However, we like to describe our lives. Our lives are a combination of experiences that are from our upbringing with our parents, our grandparents, uh, people we met. We have all been shaped by that, and that, and that is us, isn't it? Um, so, so, so whilst, yes, I would say I, you know, in the LGBTQ plus gender, I feel I'm an advocate, I feel I've, I've, I've got a lot to offer because of my own lived experiences, I have not lived the experience of being a lesbian. I haven't. Um, and the moment I pretend I have, that's then where I think we get it all wrong. So, so I think for us, we've got significant work to do, I think, to, to, to frame this as an identity piece rather, rather than a sex piece. But I think also we have to also recognise that we need to build on what is, a, what, is, what is happening at a population level in the, across the country because it is the same thing you see represented in the NHS. So we talked a little bit about staff networks. I mean, what do you look for from senior leaders in terms of, I suppose there's suppose, well, well, it's something about creating the right, creating the space for some difficult issues to be aired and allowing to find that, you know, allowing things to be discussed properly rather than it simply being a tick box exercise. Some of it though is looking at what they do in their role. So I think we're looking at what they say, as you said, in a network meeting, why are they there as allies? Well, they're there to listen and they're there to actually learn and hear things they might not have heard. So in Greater Manchester, for example, we've been doing some work with service users who are trans young people. It's called a transaction group. It's a multi-sector, multi-agency. And one of the things that started to shift the commissioning was having the director of strategy in the room with young people hearing their voices. It wasn't about then what that director of strategy did in that space. It was about what then happened to commissioning as a result of that. And I think it's the same in our workplaces. It's saying, actually, we want our allies in those spaces so that they can hear our real experiences that they don't have. But then they're in spaces that were maybe not, and actually then going to act in those spaces. I'd be interested in, in I suppose, what that triggers for me is, is thinking about the, the concessions that, that you need to make in order to, if you like, navigate a successful career in, in the NHS and what you feel the concessions are. So I think to navigate your own career, I think like anything, it's understanding the politics and part of the more senior that you go, it's knowing when to speak truth to power and when to do that in a different way. Um, and I think that balancing act is something that a lot of LGBT people probably grasp with because we're still not there yet. And so there's still inequalities that we face. And actually, when is it right to be able to challenge that head on? And when is there other ways to come across that and actually come up with a solution? And I think that's probably something I grasp with quite a lot, working in equality and diversity. I echo like what you say, Tara, and especially the, the need to kind of assess situation uh, about, you know, the level of honesty, if you like, um, when, to, when to really be bring your full whole self to, to work and whether the, at which point, when is it risky, when does it become risky? And there seems to be, um, for many people, the need to really carefully assess situation. Now I can't speak for obviously from my experience in the NHS because I don't work it within the NHS but 
by uh, surveying um, NHS staff, it's clear that um, people disclose sexuality to different people are more ready to disclose to their colleague run, rather than manager and very few actually disclo disclose to patients and service users. So I think um, we make concessions every day in our lives, all of us do, for, for just to navigate the world really. That's, that's, that's the reality of living I think. What I would say though is is there are there are then as a gay man I make concessions every day navigating the world just as I walk into a coffee shop you make concessions um, conscious or unconscious you do that I then think in the workplace you also you also make some so an example I would have is um, I talk about my husband quite a lot because he's my husband um, and um, when um, people go and you go, you know I've got a husband, I know, you, you, we all know that, I know you've got a wife or a husband, we all know that. And then they say things like, you know your person at home. And you're like, do I make a concession there and say, and just move on? Do I just, oh come on, it's a conversation at work, it's fine. Or do I actually say, you mean my husband? And that may sound a really, really simple and, and, and basic thing. But that is the sort of concession you do make as a human being on a regular basis. What advice would you give to someone starting out in the NHS? First of all, it's an absolute privilege to have a job in the NHS. That's the first piece. So, so always remember that. And don't squander that opportunity. You get the ability to help to either have a direct impact on someone's health and their outcomes or to be part of shaping that. And if you are working in the administration team, you are still supporting that agenda, even at times those staff don't feel that way. Second bit though, more on this agenda, is um, you, will, you will at times face a difficult time and you need to have your own support network for how you manage that. Don't let one experience define your, your career in the NHS as well. As we keep going back to us being a massive employer, that actually if you meet a leader that maybe doesn't connect with you or actually doesn't demonstrate the values that we probably all champion here, there's probably a hundred more leaders that will and actually that you will feel that you're able to be yourself and have that conversation with. And I think that's probably the same in any big organisation and employers, but I think more so in the NHS that we've got more people in our organisations that are in it for the right reasons, that care about making a difference, and so you're going to find those people that want to support you to be your authentic self at work. And I would say, um, just first of all, it is possible to have a very successful career, whatever it is, as an LGBT plus identifying person. It is really important uh, in any organisation to have somebody you can seek advice and support from. I've always had a mentor, for example, as, as an academic, and that's been hugely important to my career. Although that person has never been from the LGBT plus community, it's someone who I um, admired, someone who I trusted, someone who was, had ex expressed and explained understanding of LGBT issue, issues openly. So therefore, I, I really kind of went out of my way and asked, approached these people to, to be my mentors. It's been absolutely the key to where I'm at today, really. I mean, we talked, talked a lot about how far we have come. Um, and certainly as, a, as an older gay man, you know, who, who came through the 80s and came through the, the HIV and AIDS crisis, I sort of look back and think, gosh, that we have come 
a long way, but it interests me that actually people starting out in their careers are still sort of having to ask questions about how they navigate. If we look forward, you know, five years, let's, be, let's not be too ambitious, what, what would we what would we like to see in the coming in the coming years? What would what would be nice to feel that was happening across the NHS? I think for me, there's a couple of things that jump out. Firstly, is a recognition that the landscape's changing for trans people. So actually, understanding that a lot of trans people are transitioning a lot younger, and so they're starting their whole careers out as themselves. And actually, there's there's challenges that comes with that. Actually, uh, it means that they're more susceptible to the biases of interview processes and recruitment and talent management than if they've come out later on in their careers. And is the NHS prepared for that? Seeing some more actual intentional programmes around LGBTQ plus inclusion, learning off the fabulous work of the Workforce Race Equality Standard, um, and actually taking that learning and making it work for our LGBT workforce. And I think in five years, I'd like to see some of the results of that rather than just starting that. I think that would probably be the, the ambition that I'd set us to have. And more people that are able to fill out as LGBTQ plus leaders and staff and be able to talk about it and actually we're cramming and queuing up the room like today and having people outside the door wanting to come in and go come and work in the NHS we're a great employer um, actually we're championing the values of what it means to, to be a public sector um, uh, leader um, and if we have that then I think we've, we've, we're on the right road. I would, I would like to see a more kind of grounds up LGBT activism happening in the workplace in general. So we need to find ways of helping people not only to consume diversity, actually doing it. Um, and I think in some ways the word inclusion has, isn't, isn't very helpful in, in a lot of ways because in, at the same time it seems to shut down conversations about differences which I think we need to be attuned to because we are extremely different group of people um, and LGBT plus people are very different um, so we must not lose sight of that. The visibility I think has to be at all levels now so I think we need to see some active case studies where a trans was taken from this area and they were given the opportunity here and they enjoyed it and they did this and here was the experience. Somebody who was Muslim had been told that they could not work in that area for what Ever the ridiculous reason was, and they've been asked to have given up other opportunities. Those case studies need to be real and live, and there are less than you realise in the NHS. We need to find them and promote them. And they should be promoted, in my view, then, through the visible leadership that sits on boards of NHS trusts, boards of clinical commissioning group, and also we've also got um, uh, a clear position about the world of integrated care systems. So the NHS is changing. So, so I am one of the people that lead an integrated care system. Um, when you look at all those people, there is a very, very non-diverse representative group of people leading that. So I think we need to start to put our money where our mouth is and make sure we've got a representative group at all levels. And if we don't do that, I think in reality, we could not be where, as far as you want to be in five years but I think there's definitely the potential to get it there if we just have a very clear plan of action for how we resolve those particular issues. I think this conversation's been incredibly inspiring. 
I'll certainly be taking away ideas about what I can do in my own uh, leadership practice and to promote the whole of the equality and inclusion agenda as well as promoting um, the LGBTQ um, plus agenda. So I thank you, Anna, Tara and Adam for your contributions this morning. That brings us to the end of the first of two podcasts we're doing. Do be sure to keep an eye out for episode two, where we'll be joined by another expert panel to discuss how the visibility of LGBT plus workforce issues and this experience of service users can be improved. So I think it's looking at things like, uh, would we be willing to offer the same level of leave to a, a gay man who has just had a baby as, as we would to a heterosexual woman. Advice for those looking to advance their career and remain visible. My advice to any middle manager about this or anyone else is choose who you work for. And the hopes for the future of the LGBTQ plus workforce. I guess visibility at all levels of the L, the G, the B, the T and the plus, plus, plus. So that's a real sense of visibility because that would demonstrate that something was shifting and, and changing. I'm Peter Molyneux, thank you for listening.